Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hey Micah, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Today's very hot down here in the in the southern of the Carolinas. And mm. I had a coffee just before this, so I'm like raring to go. You know, I was just thinking, like, if South Carolina was called the Southern of the Carolinas, like, I just feel like that looks like 10 times more regal typed out. Like, I can already right? envision it, like, serif, like, <laughs> tracked out all capitals. Yes, yes. I Which like I'm now just that. mirroring why I named it the League of Movable Type. <laughs> wow. We just like the long names. Yep. That have That's the what it is. It's like, it's like if you, if you have the boldness to name it something that obscure and long and weird, then like, you know, it must be legit, right? right? Yeah. I mean, I love it. I love it. All right. So what's on the docket today, my friend? We have got some fun shenanigans. We've got some fun links talking about a cool new branding project. Lots of like a uh, type in culture moments as well as a roundup of influential type. But our main story today, the nerd alert, it was hard to edit down for me, were my favorite teaching moments of Bringhurst. The top tips from the elements of typographic style. What a classic. Love it. That's going to be exciting because I haven't revisited that in quite a while. So it's going to be fun to hear what, what you came I've up with. I've revisited it like seven times since I first like visited it. I can't say I've read <laughs> the whole thing through. It's, <laughs> it's more like a handbook where you take pieces out than read yeah. from cover to cover. So I revisit it all the time. Maybe every like 18 months, I feel like I, I pry it open and then mm. spend some time with it. And I always feel like I learn new things. And I'm like, what? Yeah. This has been in here the whole time? <laughs> right? Like right in front of my face. Uh, even this last visit. I And you know, again, I didn't read it cover to cover. I probably spent like maybe like two hours kind of reading through like the first part of it because there's just several parts of Bringhurst. And I always find like the first like 80 pages to be the most useful for my day to day. You know, I think there's a middle section that's all about page layout that I've never went into, but talks about all the ratios of page layouts and how like a certain ratio of width to height on your paper can have a meaning and mm. really makes my head spin. Talks a lot about the golden ratio. And then there's like an end section of Bringhurst where it's his favorite typefaces and what he likes about them yeah. and their history. And then there's like a glossary. So I usually, it's like usually the first 80 pages that are heavily posted have post-its on them or highlighted and have annotations from what you're a book writer you write in books shocking i do i I can't bring myself to do i literally have to buy used books that already have notes in them to feel comfortable writing in a book really yeah yeah i actually got a really cool book that i keep meaning to mention and i read it the other day called the 22 laws of branding Immutable Ooh, Laws like of that. Branding. It's by the same people who wrote The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing, but it's about branding. Huh. And I got it used and there were all these notes like underlining and highlighting and like scribbled in the margins. And I was like, oh, this is great. I feel relieved. Like I can I can now write in this book. Wow. That's worth it. That's worth a check out, though. That's an interesting book. 
Yeah, I, I might have to borrow that from you soon. There's all sorts of annotations near highlights. I really regret using this one really, really vibrant pink highlighter that actually makes everything very <laughs> illegible behind it. Major regret. But <laughs> other than that, it's funny. A lot of the stuff in there is actually highlighted about the history of italics. Because you know, I love that history of italics and especially useful when you're designing italics. So most of the highlighting and annotation aren't super helpful when I do like general revisits. But hey. It's my book. It's not going anywhere. I'll probably die with it at this point. So, <laughs> all right. Okay. Back to back on topic. Micah, our first link. I'm very excited. I didn't know if it was going to make it into the newsletter, but it did. It is like a very fun, whimsical, clever stunt. It's like faux. It's like half fake, half real branding project. It's called Casern Inn and it's by the design studio Casern. I hope I'm saying that right. I bet it's French in some way because they're from Canada. Mm. But they basically designed the branding is for like a members only resort that reminds you of a Wes Anderson movie. Everything kind of like eclectic patterns and beautiful color schemes. And they designed a whole branding suite mostly with this logo for the resort that kind of reminds you of like vintage, uh, you know, like old bed and breakfast logos, sort of like mid-century inn of sort. And so they designed the branding for it. They took beautiful photographs in this location and they have this promo video for it. But what it really is, is it was a stunt initiative by Cassern and they did actually rent out this vacation home and allowed their employees to stay there to take a break from working from home in the home. So wow. I like I like that concept. That sounds nice. And so while they had their employees stay there, they decided, why don't we just make a beautiful branding design for it and get some media attention for it, which I think is successful. And in the end, they actually made a lot of these products. They made like a robe and ballpoint pens and rolling papers and scarves. <laughs> and then they ended up selling the goods on their site and donating funds to a foundation that helps raise awareness for mental health. So pretty complex weave of things but visually i i just really enjoy this project that's that's mostly what i have to say about it it's a goofy thing i mean when i first yeah. when i first opened this up i was like what what on earth am i looking at and you really have to like get all this information from the tiny footnote in the corner yeah which i also think is just hilarious like what a good sense of humor yeah and i guess it's funny i mean maybe if they specifically mentioned the Wes Anderson reference, I missed it. But they I certainly see it now that you mention it. And I'm like, oh, that's even more funny. I love that. Yeah, I I actually came across this branding. My friend sent me an article reviewing the branding by Brand New. And Brand New is an editorial blog that does reviews of rebrands and new brands. And even them, they were like, this is really unusual for us. First of all, we only really review high profile brands and like their rebranding. This isn't even a real brand, but they were like, but the, the brand they were able to capture with this project is so interesting and we wanted to share it with people and so they reviewed it brand new is under pay lock so we didn't want to send it to people with people not being able to access that article so here's the actual work from the company itself and i mean the project lots to think about but all in all this type is so beautiful the logo is so well done and i think this is actually just such an interesting case study in creating a brand with its core 
key asset being beautiful type in the logo and then seeing what you can do with that to create a brand by bringing that beautiful type into different textures, different color schemes, because they don't really have any other graphic assets besides Mm. this beautifully done script logo type. The rest is is all photography of the items that are using the script typography, right? Yeah, exactly. So that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I... (laughs) I don't know. This like beautiful is certainly not the first word that comes to mind just because of the Wes Anderson kind of like grungy photography. Grungy isn't the right word either. I'm literally lacking adjectives to describe what it is. But also, I mean, it is very well done. And it's such a goofy, fun thing to be well done. Yeah, I just I, I like it all the more for that reason. Yeah, for sure. And I found out, interestingly enough, I never even knew about this studio. Of course, I like go to the studio's Instagram page and I have like 30 people I know that follow them. I'm like, great. I'm glad no one told me that they existed. (laughs) And they have really great work in the portfolio. They do a lot of branding and packaging work. And interestingly enough, that that logo for Casern Inn was not actually done in-house by Casern. It was designed by Coppers and Brasses which is a type foundry Mm. and pretty interesting. I don't know. I feel like no one's talking about how type foundries, yes, they sell fonts, but type foundries often get commissioned to create logo types these days and work on really beautiful typography for brands that isn't necessarily type design, but is logo types. And I mean, we were even talking to Trey Seals who does book covers and book designs Mm. with his typography. So I think we should like talk about that more. I don't know. I don't know how to talk about that more, but I also would like to. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people too assume that like, you know, there's, there's not much money in fonts unless you're like some famous giant foundry or something. And one of the kind of back end versions of making money in fonts and typography is that commissioned work. So I don't know. I don't know how we approach that, but maybe we do some interviews with some type designers and like, mm-hmm. just so curious about that aspect of the business because it, I, it's, I know it's a thing. Yeah, totally. So very cool. I think that's just an enjoyable link to feast your eyes on and spread the love to other people that you think would be interested because I think it's a cl- crowd pleaser for mm. sure. Cool. Next on the list, It's Nice That. I feel like we haven't had an article from It's Nice That in a minute. That's true. We um, used to have like seven of those a, a day. And I think I think we found a lot of other sources to like find interesting stuff. And so we didn't want to overdo it. But For sure. And in It's Nice That fashion, of course, this is about experimental typography, which mm-hmm. I think they love to report on. <laughs> so this is about a new book about how typography behaves under extreme conditions. It's called Teasing Typography. It's published, I believe, by the publishers are named Slanted. Julianne Nost has edited and designed the book, and it is derived from her experimentations with using really basic typefaces and using them in really abstract ways. So that's a bunch of layering to create patterns, you know, ways that don't even use type to be legible, but use type as a medium for making art, basically. Mm. It's hard to explain on on a podcast, but I definitely suggest you go to the link because there's lots of examples of her using type to make like really abstract patterns and and just shapes using 
type as the form and using type in a small scale. So kind of amassing typography to create different shapes. So instead of, you know, just like maybe six columns on a page as you would in like a magazine article, there'd be six columns of type on a page and the way that the rag is set creates all these negative shapes within there that makes it kind of interesting to look at. She said that her friends and family that aren't involved in design don't understand the notion of the book, but she says, you don't have to. It's all about expressions of fun with typography and visual phenomena that happen when you kind of just take things to their extreme environment. Yeah. It's more of like an art piece that like typography more than anything else. Like it is quite interesting to see some of these type pieces kind of remind me of the squeegee paintings that like the abstract expressionists did in the 50s and 60s and an artist that I can't think of his name right now. But you know, when you kind of squeegee paint across a canvas, there's a very organic texture that happens. I feel like she's able to do these. Specifically, the second to last image feels like that. It's like looking at textures rather than looking at type. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think, I I can't believe this is a 500 page book, by the way. And it's not even all of the work she did. It blows my mind. I do. I I mean, okay. So I, you know, I'm not much of, of an artist, artistic type. Like I'm a very functional designer, blah, blah, blah. This reminds me of like a lot of the projects that they forced us to do in foundation year of art school of like, you know, make compositions out of black and white shapes, or you have to make a composition and then photocopy it and then photocopy the photocopy and keep doing that until it just gets like messy and weird and you, you didn't do it on purpose anymore. And then you can critique the composition and weird shapes and colors that come up from that. And that's certainly interesting. Yeah. Part of my struggle with stuff like this is the prompt questions that I can never tell if they really prompted the art or if the questions came up as a way to justify the art's existence. Are you speaking in this context or in your art school context? Well, I mean both, but like I clicked on the link at the bottom of this to her page where she's like selling the book on mm-hmm. slanted.de. And, you know, it's the, the, how does typography behave under extreme conditions? What visual phenomenons, patterns, artifacts, and graphic elements can be provoked by pushing type through extreme grids and using extreme typographic parameters? At what point does a text step back from its, I mean, it says to its original purpose of informing the reader, when does text become something else? And in this instance, it kind of feels like those are true questions that actually prompted this, Mm -hmm. right? But I think sometimes art projects can get like justified after the fact. Mm, Totally. That's like half of art school is trying to call people on their bullshit. Right. But it's like, it's like recommending bullshit too. Sorry for the swearing everybody out there, but yeah. And so I kind of like what, what you said about the quote about her friends and family not getting it. And that's nice because it just seems a very authentic artist. Yeah. Like, exactly. hey, I made these and they look interesting. Isn't that cool? Do you want to look at them? Yeah. And I feel especially as designers, we can feel sensitive about being like, oh my gosh, we labored over this for so long. And most of what we design is for people to understand and is for making logic and sense of whatever we're given. So I also do like that sentiment a lot. Yeah. And honestly, I don't know, the like black and white 
nature of this, the fact that every spread or every page that is an experiment has has some like InDesign file name. I see that. I think that there's some, I don't totally understand it. And I think I'd have to pick up the book to, to get it. But th- this last image looks like there is some system to why those names are the names that they are. Mm-hmm. I just don't quite follow it yet, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. That makes me very curious. For sure. Very, very curious. <laughs> I had to say it like that. But fun. A nice link to kind of break up some of the more designery stuff we have into just some cool experimentation. Our next link, I'm excited about, but I just have thoughts that I want to share. And I haven't been able to share them with anyone. I've been sitting with these thoughts for a couple of weeks. So Molly Boz from Bon Appetit. She was one of the famous people in the video series that had that huge scandal. Anyways, she has, she has published a book, her and her team. It's called Cook This Book. And it is designed... It's heavily designed. It's a heavily designed cookbook. <laughs> it is a cookbook and in many ways has similar things to what we expect in most cookbooks, except the design is really intense and the typography is very present throughout mm. the cadence of the book. I knew about this because I saw the cover and I was like, that cover looks interesting. There's really well done type on there. Next, I find out that it was designed by Violaine A. Jeremy. Jeremy. They're a design studio, I believe, but they also publish and design fonts and they used their own fonts in the book, which makes sense. Another instance, oh my gosh, people that are designing type and using type and seeing how that comes to fruition. I literally went to my bookstore three days ago to try to look at this book because I'm really curious, how did they get away with doing whole spreads of just typography and no actual food substance and information on pages. There are just pages that are huge type. And I'm just so curious how this works. Went to my bookstore. The bookstore is mobbed because everyone's trying to go to bookstores right now because no one was allowed to go to bookstores for months. I didn't even like, I was like, I don't need to be in this crowded place just to look through this book. I'll do it another day. Interesting typography, really experimental for a cookbook, um, really whimsical, I just, I really want to see this book in person. Mm-hmm. And these pictures actually make me want to do that even more than I thought. This is, this is definitely wild. Like, it's so interesting how many things we have found in the last few months that are such retro throwbacks to, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. like this is so retro. Yeah. My favorite spread in this showcase is the I love salt and it shows like a very flat graphic hand picking up the O in love and then there's just simple geometric shapes making a pyramid below it that look like grains of salt I think that's just so fun yeah Um, very retro too there's so much to soak in in these images and I work with a lot of food packaging these days and even the food photography is just really well done and it's paired with like very thoughtful design I'm just so fascinated to pick this up and look through it this just reminds me too like how retro this is reminds me of that article that we talked about a few weeks ago with with the blanding right and how there's, you know, like a lot of direct-to-consumer brands or, you know, like like the branding in supermarkets and, and whatnot are getting these like higher-end branding systems. And so many of them are retro. Yeah, yeah. And this feels like a weird evolution of that. And I, I don't totally understand. I kind of get it. Like, 
an old cookbook is heartwarming, right? Mm-hmm. I kind of get it. And this is, you know, a very creative, expressive take on that. And that's super mm-hmm. flipping neat and interesting. Mm-hmm. Even and the I, pages of the cookbook are not pure white. Do you see right. that? They're yeah, like yeah, they yeah, all yeah. white. As if, as if the pages are already old and it's been sitting around for a while. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting. And I totally don't get it, but I totally get it at the same time. I yeah. think I think I'm now getting to the point in my designer taste of like, oh, I don't I don't match what's happening in the world anymore. <laughs> and like, that's OK. That's fine. Micah, do you think your opinion of using your head in your heart could do you think it would be justifiable to, the, to buy this book? as a resource for me as a designer to learn from and then expense it on my taxes next year absolutely not even a question not even a question i don't i don't even know why you're asking it i would have done it already if i was i'm like if i need to justify this to my accountant i could probably find a way to do it yeah i mean you don't even need to i don't even think you would have to explain that all right i'm sold how much does the book cost $120. Oh $120. Probably like 30 bucks or something. Probably not. Anything. I don't know. Okay. All right. I'll let That's you guys the beauty know. Of, of being a self-employed human. That's true. This is true. I need this for learning material. Right. Cool. All right. Let's keep it pushing. I feel so Eight- talkative today. Yeah. A lot going on with bringers. We'll see how long this ends up being. 18 of the most influential typefaces and the design history behind them. I actually love this article because of how much you don't love this article. Okay. All right. Controversial <laughs> starting statement. Let's go, Micah. <laughs> no, no. So we were talking about this article before we started. And, you know, it's kind of just like, a highlight of fonts that you should probably know exist. And you were saying the audience is is definitely not for aficionados or people who love typography. It's for the people who have to use fonts and maybe don't know the background of some of these things. And so it's cool to like see, you know, the the top hit list of fonts that everybody should know exist and a paragraph or two of background about them. Can you share the thing that made you despise this article so deeply? Well, yes. First of all, like, I'm okay with non-font people writing font articles. Hey, that's fine. I think that's great. I think fonts are part of culture at this point. They're large discussion points. So I guess it started off, they're talking about different types of typefaces. They talk about how font and typeface do not mean the same thing, but then they defined it in the version that I don't like people defining it in. Of course, they're like, Times New Roman Bold and Times New Roman 10 Point are two different fonts. When I like defining fonts as software that your typeface is encapsulated in, as the mm. font being the vessel, typeface being the design. Okay, like, that's I like, like how you say you like to define it that way when it is the definition. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've, and, we've had this debate before. For anybody who hasn't come across this debate, it's basically in the olden days of lead type. Right. A font was it had to be a certain size because it was a chunk of lead and that was its own item. And when fonts turned into software, the definition changed. And so a lot of times you'll find older articles or less deeply researched articles that that define it as that as opposed to what it is now. Okay, my second beef, I have three main issues, like three, three points of beef. Beef two. <laughs> they have they define typefaces in four categories. It's either serif or sans serif, important, or it's decorative, purely for ornamentation, or it's script. 
Some uh, say that script is a fourth category, while others yeah. claims it fits under decorative. Yeah. Beef three. Beef three. Beef three. Might be my biggest beef. They claim they start the list of influential typefaces with a font called Trajan's Column, when in fact, they mean the font Trajan that was inspired by Trajan's Column. So I appreciate they're trying to make the teaching moment happen. They just kind of missed the mark. And I literally done myself. I'm like, am I crazy? And has Trajan really been called Trajan's Column? And I Googled it and it's no, it's Trajan by Carol Twombly. I mean, also the first sentence is it rarely gets used much use in modern graphic design, but Trajan gets used constantly all over them, everywhere. So yeah, other than that, it's fine. Other than that, I think it's a decent overview of, you know, 18 and 18 important typefaces throughout history with a nice little snippet about them. You know, I wouldn't say Rudiger is on my top most influential typefaces, but you know, it's it is one that you learn about early in typography and they talk about Verdana and where the name comes from, which is actually comes from Verdant. First is how Verdana happened. And then Anna is in honor of Anna Howlett, the daughter of Virginia Howlett, who worked with Matthew Carter to make the typeface. See, I didn't even know that. That's neat. That was neat. That was So there are some moments where I'm like, okay, okay. okay. Well, I wouldn't say that these are the, the 18 best fonts that have ever existed necessarily. Like most influential typefaces might be true. Because these are these are all the classic fonts from art school that were all taught first. True. You need to know. Maybe with the exception of Textura. I don't know. Sounds a little out there for me. But Yeah. They had to include a black letter, so I get yeah. it. But um, in any case, I, this is still a, a neat article. I'm kind of glad it's in here because it gave us a chance to talk about some of this stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of our fellow type nerds can read through this get a little chunk of history that maybe you didn't know some of those fun details and, you know, maybe feel good about knowing more than other people, which is okay. Yeah. I mean, I felt like when I was first learning typography, I'd always spew out the random fun facts that non-type people didn't know and feel very proud of myself. Yeah. Including the history of Comic Sans, which is in this as well. Classic. Everyone's fave. True. True. I don't know. Who knows? But where Comic Sans future is leading. Now is actually kind of a cool time to take a break and say, hey, thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to Adobe for helping to sponsor this week's episode. Their creative suite is one of the standards of design software and comes with a subscription to like a giant library of fonts that you can install, embed, use pretty much however you like. We've even got a few of our fonts in their library as well, if you're looking for those. And uh, we are grateful for them supporting the community with us. Totally. And thanks, too, to our members. Um, If you don't know, we've got a small and wonderful membership where for a tiny amount every month, you get awesome extra resources in our weekly typographic emails every week. Those are cool fonts that we found that you might want to add to your arsenal. Current jobs or gigs you might be interested in. Um, At the moment, it's only $5 a month, and we're upgrading a bunch soon. So hop in now if you want to get those goodies next week. Micah, it's time. I forget our, we used to have a song and we abandoned it, but. We have, we have a vocal. It's nerd alert. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) There you go. All right. Okay. I'm going to try to be brief because we just had so much to talk about, but the elements of typographic 
typographic style. If you don't know the elements of typographic style, I it's hard to describe. It is this book that looks like the size of a regular paperback fiction novel, but it is, like Mike and I said, a little bit of a reference book. It's by Robert Bringhurst, who was, it claims in his bio he was a typographer and a book designer. I do not doubt that. He knows a bunch on the topic, but he is really most well-known for creating this book. He was also a poet. So a lot of the ways he describes typography is very verbose and in metaphorical terms. But at the same time, he he kind of can go from the pendulum swing of being very verbose about a thing, but having the metaphors actually hit spot on for the rules of typography. And mm. we're going to see that manifest in some of the snippets I picked out for us today. Any other comments about Bringhurst, Micah, you'd like to add before I go? I think, I, well, okay. So I think Bringhurst is great because there aren't that many handbooks on what to do. I mean, straight up, it's just like, you know, I feel like a lot of typography and this is not, this is not type design. This is typesetting, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think a lot of typesetting, shoot, even in school, but especially if you're on your own outside of school, you know, you'll, you'll like find articles or something that are like, do this. And, and this book is a much more gentle and much more detailed and much more descriptive version where it's not just like do this it's like here's what you should do and why that's such a good choice yes yes and it sometimes says oh and also this is something you should do you may not have been doing this before because x y and z history around it Mm, talking about how history like typography has evolved and where he believes the most, you know, sensitive and intelligent decisions should be made at our state of typography. Also, might I might I add, Bringhurst is not a huge fan of display typography. He doesn't really talk about how to use it. He um, talks about logo types and word marks. He compares them to candies and drugs meant to lure people in and don't have a lot of integrity. So to take everything he says with a grain of salt, knowing that he's really there to help you typeset documents or books in the best way possible. Also, you know, things like children's books, I don't think follow Bringhurst rules. So he he's speaking to a very specific audience, people designing in a much more traditional typesetting method, but has timeless tips in here. I, this is my favorite passage of Bringhurst that I just hold really close to my heart. So we're going to start here. And when I teach, I sometimes say this quote at the beginning to set the intention for how my class goes. So this is it. This is it. It's on page 20 of Bringhurst. And it is, the typographer's one essential task is to interpret and communicate the text. Its tone, its tempo, its logical structure, its physical size all determine the possibilities of its typographic form. The typographer is to the text as the theatrical director is to the script or the musician to the score. That's like a really beautiful quote about typography also encourages people right above it. The heading is read the text before designing it, which is really to say that you are designing to honor the text. And that is, I feel like it took me a long time to understand that in typography. Like even when you first choose fonts for a word document, you just do what it feels good good to you. And then you choose fonts that feel good to you when you're a beginning typographer. And then I think soon 
as you like grow and progress, you do think of it more in all the little details that make up good typography. And I think that you know what that makes me think of a couple years ago, I was very close to a poet who cared a lot about typography. And that feels like a perfect example where I think she kind of showed me that the way that you set a poem can change the way that you read that poem out loud. And Mm. when you hear that out loud, you understand why it was set that way. And then suddenly you can read it that way on paper in your head or whatever. And that totally changed my, like the way that I see typesetting serious text like that. So I totally appreciate that. You know, like we're talking about great passages from this book, but like this book itself is a great specimen of design and you can learn from the way this book was perfectly typeset to how book does like good book design actually works you know all right I'm not gonna read like passage by passage I have so many post-it notes but I'll talk about some things that I think he teaches in a really good way our next point I never realized this but he really kind of hones down on what typographic color is without showing what typographic color is so I've been watching too much tiktok (laughs) oh god no I wasn't even (laughs) I just feel like on this podcast, sometimes we talk about typographic color or I'll talk about it in my daily life and I never know how to describe it. And it's really hard to without giving visual examples. So he actually talks about it having to do with three things. Here they are. Okay. Color in the typographic sense depends upon four things. Sorry, four things, not three things. The design of the type the spacing between the letters, the spacing between the words, and the spacing between the lines. That's just so clear and direct. Yeah. Right? Because you think about it. If if a typeface is designed with poor spacing between the letters, it's like they have poor side bearings in the type design. Therefore, that's something that the type designer is proofing for when they check their type is to make sure their color is good in the font. And then you think about designers and when the designer is thinking about tracking when they're looking at the color after they typeset the font, which hopefully the color of the font is good because the type designer put that into it. And then they're also looking at, you know, the letting, what's between the lines words that will influence how dense your color is on the page. And to get back to his very poetic takes on things, Bringhurst talks about talks about poor color and how that can lead to white acne or pig bristles, a rash of erratic and splotchy word spaces or an epidemic of hyphenation. And there specifically, he's talking about if you do justified lines of text with not enough characters in the lines of text. I think we've all seen that. I used to see it in my student newspaper when I was in high school. There'd just be like rivers everywhere through the text because it was all justified, but there was never enough characters. Yeah, totally. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So I thought like he has some really great points upon that. And, you know, I think he says an interesting thing too about justified taxes. There's always a trade-off between evenness and spacing and frequency of hyphenation. I feel like this is an argument with clients where clients either like ragged right or they'll like justified, like fully justified text and they don't have a good reason why. And so if you need to convince them or one or the other, Bringhurst has some convincing for you to do Mm. in like very technical terms. He even says that sans serif faces look best set ragged no matter what the length of the measure. So that's his hot take, which I haven't heard that before. Yeah, interesting. I don't think I've ever heard that either. Yeah, very fun. Okay, moving on to the next fun tidbit. 
So Mike and I, we always get into how some, I don't know if you were taught this, but to put two spaces after a sentence when you're typesetting. Oh, I mean, I, I, you know, in high school, my teachers all told us to do that. And I was always the kid being like, actually. Got it. You're that kid. Because we yeah. had this conversation. So I always, always used to think that that was a habit from typewriting people that learn to type onto typewriters. Right. But Bringhurst clarifies this history and says in the 19th century, okay, 19th century, which was a dark and inflationary age in typography and type design, many compositors were encouraged to stuff extra space between sentences. And so he says this actually comes from the 1800s and then lasted throughout the 20th century. But, but you know, to counteract this, he says, your typing as well as your typesetting will benefit from unlearning this quaint Victorian habit. So he doesn't blame it on typewriting methods. He blames it on Marian age, which I never knew that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Fun other fact. Okay, another debate that me and Micah have. What is an orphan? What is a widow? Always hard to keep track of these. Yeah, um, totally. I always forget that. And so this section of Bring Her says, never begin a page with the last line of a multi-line paragraph. Okay, here he clarifies it. Isolated lines created when paragraphs begin on the last line of a page are known as orphans. So a paragraph that is at the very bottom of the page and it's starting. That's what he defines as an orphan. They have no past, but they do have a future. And then he says if there's stubby ends of paragraphs left at the top of the page, at the first line of the page, they are called widows because they have a past but not a future and they look for shortened and forlorn, which is terrible. See, well, I always struggle with the past future thing because it's in both. And so I can never remember which one's first, you know? It's super confusing, exactly, because he also doesn't define orphans as the way we all define orphans. Like, I feel like day to day, people in design define orphans as, oh, there's like one short word left at the end of a paragraph, figure out how to solve that. But he actually defines it as starting a paragraph on the last line of a page. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I also don't think that's super relevant for like web design. Whereas I think when we talk about orphans as being like, oh, that stubby word on the last that has its own line that's at right. the end of a paragraph. That seems like more relevant to my day-to-day life. Than yeah, I mean, I can certainly these. see how it's still relevant in book design, but I think both sure. are both are useful and important in book design. And only one of those is useful in web design, which let's be honest, we all read, I think, on screens. yeah. More. I was going to say more often than books. I don't know if that's true, but that's certainly but my truth. That's your, yeah, that's my truth too. And I don't even like that truth, but it is I know, the I truth. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I have two more, two more fun facts, and then we'll close this up. Really fun fact, you know I love numerals. I love talking about Roman versus Arabic numerals. Arabic numerals being the standard numeral system we're all familiar with but people just forget to call it Arabic. So it talks about how there was history of Roman numerals in our typographic history. So that makes sense. And with new Roman numerals, you know, you could do upper and lowercase. So you could have lowercase Roman numerals or uppercase Roman numerals. Well, the whole idea of non-lining and lining figures or numerals was that non-lining was a lowercase set of numerals and mm-hmm. lining was an uppercase set of numerals, yeah. which may seem obvious when we learn typography. And then if it's all caps, try to use lining. If it's lowercase. I don't, I don't think a lot of people know that. Oh, 
it's a great tidbit though. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I wanted to share that. And especially because like, that makes sense. I think a lot of the reason why people never, why we don't see non-lining numerals is in, in so many instances these days is for a lot of reasons. I think a lot of them had to do with commercial typography. It was like, oh, you want to put a price on a sign? It has more impact if you make that, you know, big numbers, mm-hmm. lining numerals instead of non-lining. And then he has this really funny little sentence where he tries to argue for using non-lining numerals and says, numbers are a basic part of typographic speech and they are a sign of civilization and a sign that dollars are not really twice as important as ideas Ah. and numbers are not afraid to consort on equal footing with words. And so Mm. that's his argument for non-lining. I love it. Yeah, that's kind of neat. I mean, I guess I've always thought of that. I think only after reading Bringhurst did that make Mm -hmm. sense to me. And I've always thought of that as like, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't throw a capital word of the in the middle of a sentence because it would disrupt the flow of reading that sentence. And so Mm -hmm. I try to think of it the same way that if there's numbers in the middle of a sentence, Mm -hmm. you know, set them in a way that it won't disrupt your reading. I agree. I do similar stuff with envelopes. If I have a lot of upper and lowercase design on an envelope design, I'll try to do non-lining numerals so that it all feels like it has a similar cadence rather than like upper and lowercase numerals really big and shouty and then upper and lowercase. Which we probably should have started with this, but non-lining numerals might be terminology that not everybody remembers. True. So non-lining is when the numerals have various baselines when you typeset them. Like descenders, kind of like a, like a G goes beneath the baseline. Right. Some numbers are the designed same baseline. to do that. Yes. Right, right. Same baseline, ascenders and descenders. Lining numerals are what we normally think of as numerals, all the same height. height. I mean, I do think the like lowercase, uppercase it is a good picture of that, but it's good to define mm-hmm. it. 100%. Okay, last fun tidbit before we let you all go. Brinkhurst talks about a scale that has been established in history. And it is a scale that I feel like is the same one that Microsoft Word gives you. So it starts with like 6.7.8.9.10.11.12.14.16.18.21.24.30.36.48.60.60.70.72. So that is a scale. Yep. So this scale... It's okay. This scale actually corresponds to words. There were names for point sizes in the olden days that we don't have anymore. For example, five points was called pearl, five and a half points, a gate, six points, non parel, seven point, minion, eight point, brevier, nine point, bourgeois, ten point, long primer. 11 point small pica, 12 point pica, which I think some of us know, 14 point English, 18 point great primer. That is what all the, the heck. I have never, I never caught that in my life. I know, which is hilarious because whenever I used to do research on Baskerville, he'd always name his, his fonts after point sizes. And they'd be like great primer number two. And I'd be like, that's such an annoying title. But now it all makes sense because yeah. it was based off the type sizes. Cause when you design type in the olden days, like we're saying it's lead individual, you know, pieces of type. It mattered what point size you were designing at. So fun, fun, fun fact, fun fact. That's wild. And so we obscure. Gotta, we had to make a graphic to tell the world about that. Mission. Mm, interesting. Very fun. 
Very fun. All right. Long episode, but very fun. I, I also just love hearing your take on your favorite pieces of Bringhurst too, because it is such a immense catalog of useful resources. And most of what I've always paid attention to is how you design a page and how much space you should have on the left or the right and when you should do this, when you should do that. And I, I think I always ignored some of the, I don't know, less less practical ones, I guess. It's really cool. It's it's a great book. Thank you. And our final link in the newsletter, we're not going to talk about it here, but it relates to Bringhurst. We found a website that applies all the Bringhurst rules that can apply to the web and applies it to web typography. So it's called A Practical Guide to Web Typography, the Elements of Typographic Style Applied to the Web. And uh, he takes certain chapters and sections from Bringhurst and talks about how they apply to web typography. Yep, that's it. Very cool. It's a great book. It's it's by a guy named Richard Rudder. And shoot, I forget when this, this was a Kickstarter that I actually backed once upon a time. I think it was, yeah, it looks like it was back in 2015. And so I'm pretty sure if you actually like follow through to the book, like this, the one that we linked to is a lot of useful tips that are kind of pieces of a bigger book. Mm -hmm. And if you follow through to the book and you decide to buy, you know, because it's so old, I don't think you can buy it in paperback anymore, but you can buy the ebook. And I'm pretty sure you'll see someone's name in there as a supporter. Oh, look at that. Look at that. I know the site itself is open source, which is pretty cool too. Yeah. And and it's great. It's a, it's a really fantastic resource if, if that speaks to you. Yeah. Well, very fun things going on in the type universe this week. Party. I enjoyed all of them. It did feel like a party. We really had guests that were wanted and unwanted and fun and experimental. <laughs> it was great. That was fantastic. Thanks, Olivia, as always. And thanks. and thanks again to Steph, who also found like all the great stuff this week. So we will see everybody next week with more fun stuff to share. Do 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 do